I was volunteering for the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and one of the kids I was working with, her wish was to have a movie theater in her basement. So we were preparing the movie theater, and I had been told that I could buy the boxes of candy like they have in the concession stands. And then I started eating all the candy, and I had to replace all of them. I remember at one point leaving the empty boxes on the counter in my kitchen so what I would have to look at them. So I couldn't be in denial about the fact that I was eating all that candy. Hi, I'm Barb Nangle. I want to welcome you to my podcast, Fragmented to Whole Life Lessons from 12-Step Recovery, where I help people heal their emotional, psychological, and spiritual wounds and make deep, lasting changes in their lives. I'm the founder and CEO of Higher Power Coaching and Consulting, LLC, where I coach people on how to develop healthy boundaries. On this podcast, I share my experience, strength, and hope from recovery. I don't support or endorse any particular 12-step recovery fellowship, and I don't claim to speak for any particular 12-step fellowship. I also don't believe that 12-step recovery is the only way to recover. You might need additional help. My hope is that you'll find my words concretely helpful in improving your life, whether you're in recovery or not. This is episode 162, The Progressive Nature of My Illness. One of the things that we're told about addiction and recovery is that the disease is progressive. In other words, if left untreated, it gets worse and worse and worse. And even if you abstain or you're sober or clean or whatever you want to call it for a while, if you start using again, it's almost like the disease picks up right where it left off or Maybe it even accelerates faster. This is why we say things like, my disease is out in the backyard doing push-ups. Like it's fit and ready to rumble the second you use again. My experience is that this progressive nature of the illness of addiction is also true for the addiction of codependence. I've been thinking about all this in the last couple of weeks for a variety of reasons. I've been abstinent in a food program for six years, and I've been in recovery for emotional sobriety for seven years. And I would say that codependence is the addiction for me there. I've never really allowed myself until the last couple of weeks to think about what my life might be like now if I had never gotten into recovery. And honestly, I can't even fucking wrap my mind around that. Here's why. When I hit bottom with the codependence, this is what it looked like. Every romantic relationship I ever got in was really codependent. But the last one before I got into recovery, which was a five-year relationship, was by far the worst. And when I did my relationship inventory, I could see that the codependence got worse and worse and worse over time. Well, this last man I was in a relationship with before recovery, I literally said to him, let me see if I can heal your wounds. Like I have that kind of power. And I moved in with him, having initially told him, I will never be living with you unless we're married. Because I had lived with a bunch of guys before and it was really all about convenience, not about bringing the relationship to the next level of intimacy. And I told myself that I changed my mind about moving in with him without being married because I got so much from staying with him as I recovered from my surgery. I told myself that he took really good care of me as I recuperated and that I wanted to be with him more. 
And it took me years after that to realize that I was lying to myself about that. He did not take care of me while I was recuperating from surgery. In fact, I took care of him. So it was like subconsciously I was saying, I want more of this. This is codependent enough for me. Now, if you haven't heard that story where I talk about the situation of realizing that I had been lying to myself, it's episode 23. It's called Denial 2.0. I'll drop the link for that show in the show notes. And I tell the story of when I realized, holy shit, I was lying to myself and others that whole time about my motives. Now, I'd had codependent friendships and colleague relationships as well over the years, but where it was the worst was in my romantic relationships. Well, until I met Dan, that is. Dan was a homeless person I befriended who I invited to stay at my house during a snowstorm, and within four months, he was practically living with me, and I felt fucking trapped in my own home. Now, I'm not sure what could be more codependent than having a homeless person staying at your house. So if I hadn't hit bottom and gotten into recovery from that, what would I be doing now in my life? I just can't even wrap my mind around that. I can't fathom what would be going on in my life. I'm certain I would be broke as hell because one of the things I did while he was staying with me was I stopped balancing my checkbook those last couple of months because I didn't want to face my financial situation. I didn't want to see on paper what I'd been doing. And that was an old behavior of mine, burying my head in the sand about my finances. I had cleaned up my finances years before after declaring bankruptcy in 1999 and was even able to buy a home by 2008. And one of the behaviors that I did to clean that up was to make sure that I balanced my checking account every single month without fail. That's the opposite of burying your head in the sand. Side note, every single money issue I have ever had in my life was because of codependence. So there's no coincidence here. When Dan was staying with me, I was funneling money to him for whatever. And I realize now that he was using drugs and alcohol, not just like buying cigarettes or whatever he told me he was doing. But I don't think I knew, at least consciously at the time, that he was using it for drugs and alcohol. I was also driving him all over the place. And I even allowed him to come to my office building and get free coffee from the reception area. And he started doing it more and more frequently, and I made it okay, even though I got uncomfortable with how frequently he started stopping by. I was letting this codependent relationship get in the way of my other friendships too. Now, around this time, I moved, and one of my friends came down to help me. And while she was there, I was like, oh, I have to go pick up my friend Dan. And she was like, wait a minute, I drove all the way down here to help you unpack, and you're going to leave me for some fucking homeless dude? And I was like, he's not some fucking homeless dude. He's my friend. And she was like, okay, still, I drove here to help you unpack and you're going to leave me. And I remember being torn at the time, but I did it anyway. I left. Now, now I can see that this friend who was concretely helping me, which by the way, Dan wouldn't do, I was putting her on the back burner to go rescue somebody who was sucking me dry emotionally, mentally, psychologically, and also financially. So what would I be like now 
if I hadn't gotten into recovery? Where do you progress to after inviting a homeless person to stay with you, then allowing them to make you feel trapped in your own home? I I just can't even imagine where I'd be, what I'd be doing, and what kind of relationships I'd be in. And then there's the food. I would say that for me, the switch flipped, so to speak, with food in my early 20s. I did not grow up as a compulsive overeater, but I had been numbing in some capacity since childhood and drinking heavily and smoking weed heavily all through my teens. But when I quote quit smoking at age 22, I went into the food. And when I say quote quit smoking, I mean, it's because I truly only quit for six months. And then I proceeded to smoke secretly and lie about it for 20 years. Unless, of course, I was out drinking with friends who smoked. Then I'd smoke publicly and act like that was the only time I smoked. So I started with the food as a numbing agent in my early 20s. And I battled with like 35-ish pounds in my 20s. And then it was more like 100 pounds in my 30s. And I ended up carrying around an extra at least 100 pounds for 20 years. I don't really know exactly how much, but I know that it was more than 100 pounds. And during that time, when people would ask me about my food, they'd be like, oh, is it sweets? And I'd be like, well, you know, I like sweets, sure. But for me, it's food. I like food. But here's what's interesting. When I hit bottom, it was with sugar. It progressed to the point where at the end, I could not put enough fucking sugar in my mouth. Here's an example. I was volunteering for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. If you don't know what that is, it's an organization that grants wishes for terminally ill children. I was a wish granter. And one of the kids I was working with, her wish was to have a movie theater in her basement. So we were preparing the movie theater, and I had been told that I could buy the boxes of candy like they have in the concession stands at a store that was a couple towns away. So when I was in that area, I bought a whole bunch of these boxes of candy. Now you can buy those boxes of candy anywhere, but back then you couldn't. And then I started eating all the candy and I had to replace all of them. I remember at one point leaving the empty boxes on the counter in my kitchen so I would have to look at them. So I couldn't be in denial about the fact that I was eating all that candy. And the thing was that my real bottom was this one day where I had to do a fasting blood test in the morning for cholesterol or something. And when I got out of the lab, I was starving. And I decided I was going to go to the nearby grocery store and get some donuts, which was very unusual for me. Even though I was abusing food, I knew I need to start my day with a healthy breakfast. Otherwise, it's going to be a disaster. So I usually try to eat pretty healthy that first meal of the day, even if I ate like crazy the rest of the day. So I got three donuts, I ate them for breakfast, and then later that night, I decided I needed more donuts. And to me, this is an illustration of the progressive nature of the illness within a day. So that night, I decided I needed some donuts, and I stopped at a donut shop and ordered half a dozen. And here's the alcoholic addictive thinking. I really wanted three donuts, but I didn't want to order three because I knew that they'd know, whoever they is, that they were for me if I just ordered three. So I ordered half a dozen, and on the 10-minute drive home, I ate three of them. And while I was doing this, I was crying hysterically and begging God, please take this obsession from me at least until I get home. Now, I don't know why 
I didn't say take this obsession away forever, but I said at least until I got home. And when I got home, I told myself, I'm not going to eat the rest of those donuts. And of course, I ate the rest of those fucking donuts. And then I hid the box in the garbage. Mind you, I live alone. And it took me probably two years after that to realize that the reason I hid them was that I was hiding, hid it, hid the box, was I was hiding it from myself. So that incident with the donuts was my bottom with the sugar. Now, something else happened, which I think was the next day or the day after that. I'm not precisely sure on the timing of this, but I do consider the donut day to be my bottom. The other experience I had was I decided that I needed some ring dings. Now, I hadn't had ring dings since probably my teen years. So I bought some ring dings. And when I bit into the first one, the thought in my head was tastes like childhood. And I was like, oh, fuck, this is bad. Now, the first day of my abstinence from sugar was April 20th, 2016. It was a Wednesday morning and I woke up and I literally felt like I was being internally electrocuted by sugar. Luckily for me, I had a friend I was doing the steps with in my primary program who had been talking about her food issues, her eating behavior and thoughts, and she'd started in a recovery program for food. So I texted her that Wednesday morning and I said, listen, I just have to tell somebody that just today, just today, I'm not having sugar. And I have not had sugar since that day. Now, previously, I definitely binged on food for certain, but I was much more of a grazer than a binge eater. To me, if I saw food, I was eating it. I remember people saying stuff about not eating because they weren't hungry. And I'd say things like, what the fuck does hunger have to do with food? And I meant it. I was definitely more of a food person, though I did enjoy sweets for sure. But towards the end, it was the sugar that took me down. So to me, that really illustrates the progressive nature of my illness, and especially in my consumption of sugar. It accelerated massively at the end. And I think part of the timing of that was that I was doing step four in the other program. For those not in recovery, that's where we take a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And I was digging digging up the shit and the trauma of my childhood. So that comment, tastes like childhood, made total sense. Now, when I try to think about what would my life be like now if I hadn't gotten into recovery, I just can't wrap my mind around it. I couldn't cram enough sugar in my face fast enough at the end there. Now, I am always grateful for my recovery. I write in my gratitude journal every single night that I'm grateful for my emotional sobriety, my abstinence, my healthy boundaries, and my financial security, because these are things that I just didn't have before recovery. And then in my nightly inventory, I also ask myself, what was something I was able to do this day that I wouldn't or couldn't do before recovery. So even if I wasn't just in general grateful for recovery, which I am, I make a point every night to look for things that keep me grateful. However, my gratitude in these last couple of weeks, partly because of some difficulty I'm going through, has magnified my gratitude massively. And I'm remembering the thing we say about how my worst days in recovery 
are way better than my best days before recovery. And it is so, so true. Now, I am sharing all of this to give illustrations of my experience of the progressive nature of the illness and my profound gratitude for recovery. And to let you folks who are in recovery for whatever it is, whether it's an addiction, a compulsion, an obsession, that you're not alone. This shit is fucking real. And if you're in recovery and your life has changed for the better, that shit is real too. Because I am a very different person. I am a changed person. I just cannot say enough good things about recovery. And that's why I do this podcast. There is so much strength and wisdom and hope and healing in recovery. And it's just not making it out into the world the way that it needs to. I know that recovery isn't for everybody, but that doesn't mean they can't benefit from the wisdom we have in the rooms of recovery. There are plenty of people who do need recovery that are never, ever going to stick around or they're never even going to find it. So my hope is to get the things I've learned from recovery out there. I didn't know about this progressive nature of the illness until I got in recovery. Hell, I didn't even know these illnesses existed until recovery. I didn't know about the twofold nature of the illness of addiction, that I have a physical allergy and a mental obsession, which is a disease that tells me I don't have a disease. And it tells me that in my own voice. I didn't know any of that until I got into recovery. I didn't know codependence was a thing. I didn't know food addiction was a thing. I didn't know there was a difference between a heavy drinker and an alcoholic drinker. And I learned all this stuff in recovery. So I'll tell you what, I am going to keep coming. I was recently reminded by a friend that when I first started recovery, I didn't feel lovable. I almost can't believe that I used to feel that way and that I kind of forgot something so profound because I truly love myself now. And I want that for everybody. If you don't love yourself, there's literally nothing that can make up for that. I created something exclusively for my private clients since many of them don't love themselves. And I've now opened up my private vault to share it with up to 10 people individually. It's called the Self Love Sprint. You'll grow to love yourself and truly feel worthy. So you can stop saying yes when you really want to say no. Stop neglecting yourself and putting everyone else first. Stop saying all kinds of nasty shit to yourself. That is not what people who love themselves and feel deserving do. You'll stop being afraid that others will think that you're selfish for taking time to care for yourself. This is also for you if you don't really know who you are because you've always been such a fucking chameleon. Go to higherpowercc.com slash love sprint. Remember, I'm only offering 10 of these, so don't wait. If you like this podcast, and I'm guessing you did or you wouldn't still be listening, then you're going to love the other things I have to offer. If you'd love pre-release podcast scripts and episodes before anyone else gets them, or if you'd love access to content from my private vault that I developed exclusively for my private clients, which is like having a work session with me without me actually being there, 
go to patreon.com slash higher power coaching. There are three tiers ranging from as low as $4 up to $24 a month. You'll also love my weekly newsletter, Friday Fragments, which has content very similar to the podcast. You can check it out at fridayfragments.news. That's fridayfragments.news. Please like and subscribe to my podcast on your favorite podcast outlet. I'd also love it if you'd leave a review, which you can do either in the show notes or on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find my podcast so they can get the benefits you've gotten from listening. If someone came to mind when you listen to this particular episode, please share it with them. And my favorite place to hang out on social media is Instagram. I'm at Higher Power Coaching. Please DM me there. I'd love to hear what you got from this episode. I run group and private coaching programs on building healthy boundaries. Whether you need help with boundaries in your personal, professional, or romantic life, I can help. Head on over to barbchat.net where you can hop onto my calendar for a free 30-minute Better Boundaries consultation. My ideal client is someone who is ripe for change. If that's you, I would love to work with you. My goal with all my work is to help you make lasting changes in your life like I've made deep, lasting changes in my life. Remember, it's never too late to recover. No one is beyond hope and healing is possible. Thanks for listening.